I'm just truly blessed um, to be able to be involved in the disruption of the entire financial system, one product at a time, till eventually um, Peter can just say, fuck the banks. Hello there from Bedford in the United Kingdom, the global centre of Bitcoin media. How are you all doing? What a week, right? Bitcoin just set another all-time high, over $64,000. We also have the Coinbase IPO today. I'm expecting fireworks. Crazy stuff. 70K come in, maybe. 80K, 100K. Who knows? Crazy stuff, right? Congratulations to all you hodlers out there. Those of you who stuck it through that horrible bear market, making good returns. I'm proud of you all. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, who I am now exclusively using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack. And today I've got a massive show with Simon Dixon and Bill Barhide discussing how Bitcoin is disrupting the banks. But before that, I do have a message from my show sponsors. Okay, first up today, we have Ledger. And I've just got off a interview with Pascal and Matt from Ledger, where I've been answering all your questions following their sponsorship. People have had questions regarding Ledger, following their hack, things that they've been doing to put in place. That's going to be out very soon. They answered every question, which was pretty amazing. Now, listen, I have been a customer of Ledger's since 2017. I'm still a customer now. I'm using the same Nano S I bought back then. Big fan of the product I am. I think the UX is great. I think they've perfected it for new users. And also, I love Ledger Live. Just an easy way for managing your Bitcoin. Now, also, if you're an Android user, you can connect your Nano S to manage your Bitcoin on the go. And if you want to find out more, just head over to ledger.com, which is L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Gemini, my new exchange sponsor. Love working with these guys. And I love the product. I have now been using the product for a couple of weeks now. I love it. They've absolutely crushed the UX. And UX is always important to me. I'm always going on about it. I'm mainly using the app, but I have been using the desktop website as well. But the app, I've been using it to set up my DCA, which is a twice monthly purchase of Bitcoin, which is very cool. But also, I've been dipping in. I've been buying the dips. I'm not selling, right? You're not selling, are you? Come on. We're going 100K. Why would you sell now? Also, big thanks to Thailand Cameron for sponsoring the show and being so open. They're sponsoring devs. They've said I can approach them with any ideas, anything I want to come to them with, which is super cool. Looking forward to working with them and the whole Gemini team. If you want to find out more, please do head over to Gemini.com, which is G-E-M-I-N-I.com. And also, let's talk about BlockFi, my oldest sponsor. They've been with me for nearly three years now. Big shout out to Zach and Flory. They've absolutely crushed it as a business. And they had a massive announcement recently, the launch of their Bitcoin Rewards Visa credit card which is due imminently. It's coming very soon. I cannot wait to get my hands on one of these. How cool is that, that you can stack sats with every card purchase? You can build up your Bitcoin stack with their Visa Rewards credit card. And they've also opened up the public wait list. So whether you're a customer or not a BlockFi, you are eligible to join. You are eligible to get on that waiting list. You will be able to earn 1.5% rewards rate in Bitcoin on all card purchases. Very cool. Can't wait. If you want to register please do head over to BlockFi.com, which is B-L-O-C-K-F-I.com. Okay, onto the show, and it's an absolute banger. Anyone who listens to my show regularly or follows me on Twitter will know that I've recently got a letter from Lloyds Bank out of the blue telling me that I had 65 days notice until they closed my bank account. That is after being a customer of 25 years. And why? Why did they do this? Well, they phoned me up, and they wanted to find out a bunch of personal information. They were asking me where I'm sending my money and what I'm spending it on. I just said it's none of your business. So they closed my account. 
bullshit ride. Anyway, I've migrated to both TransferWise and Revolut. Very happy with those. But ever since then, I've been keen to do a show and look at the broken banking system and how Bitcoin businesses are making traditional banking irrelevant. So I asked my buddy Bill Barheit to come back on. He's from Arbra. We recently discussed this in an interview I did with him. But I also asked Simon Dixon to join us from Bank to the Future. I've been talking to Simon for a long time. I've known him for a long time. Always been trying to find a way to get him on the show. So pleased that he is finally joining us. This is a great show. You're going to love it. But if you do have any questions or feedback, you can reach out to me. It is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. As I say, I do reply to everyone. Speak to anyone who's written to me. I do reply as long as you don't say any weird shit. Um, but I'm getting a lot at the moment. I'm getting like 20, 30, sometimes 40 emails a day. So sometimes it takes me a day or two to get through them. So please bear with me if you do. Outside of that, have you registered for my newsletter? That's at neveredit.com, your daily dose of tech, macro, and Bitcoin. Apart from that, have a great rest of your week, and I'll see you all on Friday. Let's enjoy the fireworks today. Love you all. See you all soon. Right. Firstly, Simon, 333 episodes in, we finally get you on the podcast. I'm sorry it's taken so long. How are you, mate? Uh, I'm really good. I'm finally here. So thanks for inviting me. We've been threatening to do this for a long time. Uh, Bill, good to have you back, mate. Always good to see you and talk to you. You too, bud. Always good. Always a pleasure. Well, I brought you two together because uh, I'm very much in a fuck the, the banks mode at the moment. Uh, so me and Bill recorded recently and we had a long session about the future. Well, I say a long session. We had a, uh, a session at the end where we started talking about the future of banking. Uh, I was fed up of the banks. I can't even remember if at that point if I'd had my letter. but um, And then obviously I know uh, you've got an interest in this area, Simon. But let's just for context and anyone who's listening... I've been with Lloyds Bank in the UK now for since I was 17 years old. So essentially 25 years. And about eight weeks ago, I got a phone call from the call center just saying, look, can we run through some things on your account? I'm like, yeah, fine. What's up? They said, oh, we want to just go through some of your spends. Uh, this date you transferred this money to here, what's it for? And I was like, uh, do I have to tell you? And they said, no, no, you don't. I said, well, I'm not going to tell you. I'm you know, it's none of your business. It's my account and my account's in credit. I don't owe you anything. I haven't made any complaints. And then uh, two weeks later, I get a letter saying, in, I've got 65 days and my all my accounts are going to be closed down. And I was just like, huh, okay. So I'm very much in the position now where I'm, the, the reality of the, the threat from the banks is, is real for me. And it's quite an issue in the UK. Um, Simon, you're probably quite aware of what's going on here. So I just wanted to talk about it with you both, talk about what's going on with the banks, and then really kind of speculate about what we think the future is going to be. So, Simon, do you want to introduce yourself to the listeners? Because most people will know you, but there may be some who, who won't be aware of you. Sure, yeah. So, uh, my name's Simon Dixon. I'm the CEO and co-founder of BankToTheFuture.com. Um, I've been in Fuck the Bank, though, for about 15 years, really. It's been most of my lifetime's work. Um, so... I, uh, I I wrote a book called Bank to the Future, Protect Your Future Before Governments Go Bust. And in 2009, the same year Bitcoin launched, um, I was trying to create uh, with my wife a, a bank um, where users could own their own money. Um, users um, would have to give us permission before we could spend their money. And it would use a custody stroke trust structure whereby um, the funds are fully backed and non-fractional reserve. 
Um, and so that was really the foundation of me uh, writing the book about sustainable banking uh, because uh, I couldn't achieve that. And in fact, we went to the UK regularly. So I was living in the UK at the time. I later moved to Hong Kong and now I'm a um, but when I moved to, the, when we were in the UK, uh, we had a meeting with the regulator was called uh, the FSA at the time, the Financial Services Authority. It's now the FCA and the PRA. Um, and uh, we had a meeting with them and told them that we wanted to create a bank and we didn't want to spend users' money. We wanted people to be able to own their own money through a legal trust structure. Um, and we wanted to create a non-fractional reserve bank. And they said, well, you're going to have to step down as CEO. Um, you're going to have to raise 60 million um, and put that in the Bank of England. Um, and you're going to have to own people's money, spend people's money, and you're going to have to leverage it. Um, so it wasn't actually possible, which is what drove me um, to speaking at the first Bitcoin conference in Prague and finding out for me, the reason Bitcoin was attracted to me is because it was a solution to a problem we were trying to solve. And it seemed like these bunch of technology geeks we're creating something that we could build our bank upon. Um, and so that was how I got into Bitcoin um, and uh, just been investing in companies that have been building the infrastructure to fuck the banks for as long as I can remember. Okay, so a couple of questions there. Um, firstly, uh, that's kind of mental and crazy that they wouldn't allow you to create that bank. And also, it, when you first read about Bitcoin, you must have been like, holy shit, <laughs> this is exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, that, yeah, that's exactly it. So when, when I was at that, that first Bitcoin conference, I was the, the only finance person there. Um, everyone else was anarchists and uh, tech people. And, uh, you know, we, I, I gave a presentation on um, sustainable banking and uh, the reason Bitcoin was so attractive to me. And the reason I was willing to look at it when, you know, I was working in investment banking prior to this and many of my colleagues would have, would have dismissed it at the time was just because we were so desperate for a solution. Um, and so Bitcoin, when we looked into it, we were just trying to solve a problem. Um, so it was very attractive to us. And really, out of desperation, we started you know, using Bitcoin, um, investing in Bitcoin companies. Um, and it turned out that Bitcoin was creating what we originally thought sustainable banking looked like. And Bill, before we start debating getting into the detail of this. Obviously, people who have heard you on the show before, uh, they might not have listened to our previous show, but do you want to just do a little bit of a recap about what we discussed with regards to how you see the future and what you're doing with Arbor? Sure. Uh, I think that the, my favorite analogy so far is what's happened with uh, television, right? Uh, the, the cord cutting going on there where, and, and COVID accelerated this uh, in, the, in the US, it's, it's, it's Hulu, uh, Netflix, Disney have basically taken eyeballs and an eyeball share away from satellite uh, and cable-based um, uh, distribution. Although in some cases, cable is being used for the internet connection itself, and, or it's, but it's mostly DSL now. And and I think the same thing is going to happen with the banks and Abra is trying to facilitate that. We think that uh, wealth management, uh, lending slash borrowing, high yield and investing are all going to be crypto-centric in the future. And that's what we're building, right? We have Abra Earn, we have Abra Trade, we have Abra Borrow, and you know maybe there'll be an Abra Pay in a few months. And all of it will basically be exactly what you would want in a crypto-centric world. And it's obvious to all of us, it's not obvious to the non-crypto people out there. It will be eventually, just like it's not obvious to people 10 years ago that 
they should get rid of satellites and and just use their internet streaming service to watch to watch TV. And I am 100% convinced this is the future. The dollar, as it continues to go to shit, will be useful for ephemeral transactions, meaning it doesn't matter whether it's a dollar or a baseball card or something that you can trade quickly to buy your groceries. And you'll come out of Bitcoin into that ephemeral currency quickly, make your purchase, and that's it. Your wealth will be in something valuable and stable like crypto, Bitcoin. And, and that's the future of banking to me. And that's, again, crypto-centric, Bitcoin-centric. Um, I know you don't like that, but maybe maybe uses stable coins for certain transactions. Um, I think it will. Uh, and that's fine. And so, but that also says the banks don't add any value. Maybe trust banks add some value to store the ephemeral currency that we use in the stablecoin model, which, by the way, is better than a bank because a bank can actually take your deposits and do fractional reserve banking, which means they lend deposits they don't have, right? Um, whereas with stablecoins, a trust bank must maintain in the United States at least 100% reserves for those stablecoins. So even the cryptoization of dollars, if that's a word, uh, is better than the traditional banking system. So I just don't see a scenario, to put it in, in Simon's vernacular, where the banks aren't fucked. They just don't know about it yet. And, and to me, it looks exactly like yeah. the people who were fucked in 95 vis-a-vis the internet didn't know it. Well, it's, it's, it's the blockbuster story again as well. So exactly. one of the funny things was when I got that letter, I phoned up the bank and I said, look, what's going on here? And they said, oh, you need to go into the branch and speak to them about it. I hadn't been into a branch I think for three <laughs> or four years. Yeah, a branch. I hadn't been into a branch for three or four years. So I, I wander down to Bedford High Street. I go into the Lloyds. Uh, I wait for an appointment. I've got to wait half an hour. I sit on one of these little chairs. Uh, eventually, they come out. <laughs> it's funny, actually, because they come out and I sit down and have the conversation. I said, yeah, what's the deal? And they said, oh, we can't tell you. <laughs> right. I said, I've just been told to come down here to talk about it. They said, yeah, but we can't tell you. We don't give the reason. We've just uh, closed your account down. And I was like, okay. Uh, and then she asked, like, I asked some questions. Uh, so I said, I got a phone call a couple of weeks ago. Could it be that? And she said, oh, it's almost certainly that. If you're refusing to tell us where you're spending the money, sure. then then we can't do business with you because we don't know if you're a risk. But anyway, so I'm sat in this branch and there, there's a handful of staff there and a handful of people coming in. And, you know, there is a certain amount of discrimination that will happen by losing branches in that, like there were old people there or, uh, you know, you could tell there's just like a certain type of person coming in because they needed a branch, they needed access to a branch. But it's the Blockbuster story. You know, what was Blockbuster's strength was Lloyd's strength in that they had a high street location in every major town is now a huge cost burden. When you compare, you know, you compare them to something like Revolut or Monza, and I don't know what similar things you have out in the US, but these neobanks, these online banks, which I've migrated to, they don't have all these branches. I mean, it's a much lower cost base. Of course. So I see it's like Blockbuster, right? Yep, totally. Look, it's it's pretty simple. I mean, there's there's a, a good reasonable chance that somebody in a fraud department uh, Googled your name based upon certain patterns of maybe some wires or whatever, and saw your name associated with Bitcoin, immediately flagged it as high risk just because your, your Peter McCormick name on a Google search was next to the word Bitcoin, asked mm-hmm. you uh, vis-a-vis this so-called travel rule, which we can get into what that means, and because you wouldn't explain vis-a-vis this kind of travel rule, which, by the way, isn't a law, it's, it's a risk-based thing that the bank gets to interpret the way they want. It's not about your rights, obviously, otherwise you'd still have the account. Um, mm-hmm. And they can interpret that any way they want, and they don't have to tell you. 
but you know, usually my my opinion is the simple explanation is usually the most likely, and that sounds like a pretty simple explanation. That's that's totally plausible in this case, and it's insane, right? I mean, we've gotten to a point now where these banks that are traditionally the largest money launderers in the world, right, have fines in going into the hundreds of billions of dollars are basically shutting off relatively small retail accounts. Not that you're not wealthy. Maybe you are wealthy. But in the big picture, our, our accounts in the aggregate are still small relative to the size of these banks. And, yep. and it, it makes no sense. But again, when you see like the, the MO for these banks and the fact that they're willing to do continually launder money and, and run these operations like this and shut off small accounts like this, you realize that they have no future. It's just not possible. The government has basically almost mandated they have no future. Yeah, so one of my friends had gone in touch with me the other day, and he's, I've just got his text message up. He asked me to come over. He said, look, I'm thinking of getting into the Bitcoin thing. What do I do? Blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, how much do you think you invest in? And he was quite a serious amount. He was like, I'm thinking of putting in about £250,000 in. I was like, well, okay, that's a, that's a big investment. You need an institutional account. I'll have a chat with Gemini. And I got him on boarded, right? Uh, and then he went up and set his connection up with HSBC. They immediately suspended his account. Unbelievable. Immediately suspended his account. I don't know how much you've tracked this, Simon, because you're, you're obviously from the UK, but we seem to be one of the worst places for finding banks that will do crypto business. Are you, or Bitcoin business, are you aware of why we're so bad here? Yeah, so um, I, I've got a lot of experience. I had to leave the UK just to do our yeah. business. Um, so, you know, we just couldn't do it in the UK. Um, we uh, had lots of experience. So uh, basically in, the, in, in England, you have four clearing banks that directly clear into the Bank of England. Um, and then you have a lot of other financial institutions that sit on top. Um, part of the lobbying work that we did back in the day um, there was, I don't know if you remember, do you remember Bank on Dave and Bank of Dave and things like that? I don't know if you remember these uh, yeah, programs, but that? Um, that led yeah. to um, the opening up of the Bank of England and the concept of the Challenger Bank. So some of the early companies that we were investing in through Bank to the Future were some of those Challenger Banks, um, Bitcoin companies. But um, ever since being involved, so the very first company I invested in was BitPay. Um, and I've made a hundred different investments, including Abra, I should disclose as well. Um, but um, in the constant problem has always been uh, banking. Um, and that's, that's, that's getting better. But what's way more interesting is the fact that now many of the companies that, we're, that I'm invested in don't actually really need banks too much as much as they used to. You know, and that's the really interesting thing. Banks now get disruption from two places. Firstly, they get the disruption from the innovation that's happening in our industry, where now I can you know, save digital hard sound money. Um, I can get fiat value using um, stable coins. I can invest some of that um, into financial products that are producing returns that you can't get anywhere else. Um, I can lend some of that. And there's lots of you know, the, the innovation in our industry now. Um, as a result, means you don't need that. But they're also getting disruption from the central bank because Bitcoin, you know, created this desire to understand blockchain technology. And back in 2013, the banks tried to get rid of Bitcoin by popularizing the word blockchain and the whole phrase of, oh, I love the technology behind Bitcoin um, and blockchain changes everything. Um, but the central banks actually started listening to that. Now every central bank 
has um, got uh, innovation that circumvents the need for a bank where these central banks are now going to launch central bank digital currencies, API-based banking where financial technology companies can build on top of the central bank. Um, And that is extremely disruptive for private digital currency created by a bank, which is backed by debt. Um, So it's getting disruption on these two areas, um, which are really problematic. But to talk about your problem, it's quite simple. Basically, uh, the government removed uh, privacy. If you speak to any of our parents, like my, my father comes from a generation where if someone asked him what he's doing with his money, he would have given the same reaction. You know, fuck you, who are you today? Um, but we've now accepted in society that we now live in a day and age where it's completely okay that we do not own our money, we can't spend our money. Um, we have to beg permission. The way that I look at my fiat currency in a bank is I'm lucky if I can spend that. I know that every single transaction, I have to send them an invoice, I have to send them a description of how the proceeds of those funds were achieved. It took me nine months to purchase my house because the, the, the person that was selling it to me wasn't willing to accept Bitcoin. So it's just the way the world is now. And that's because regulators have stated that um, banks and financial institutions need to be law enforcers. They need to do the job of policing all transactions. Um, and so therefore, they need to know everything. And the easiest way um, to just not get um, on the wrong side of that is just to say anything that's got the, the slightest inclination of risk, just get rid of it as a customer. We don't need them. We can create our own money. We don't need deposits. Deposits are not a prerequisite um, for banking anymore. And so the whole, mi- the whole model of banking is just ripe for, for so much disruption and so much change. Um, and every day, people are discovering more that they want to own their own money. They need to be able to spend their own money, and they need to combat um, money printing. So it's driving adoption for Bitcoin at the end of the day. And are these UK-specific issues with regards to law enforcement being the burden of law enforcement with uh, transaction being put on the banks? Is that something happening in the US as well, Bill? Yeah, sure. So, so it's a global problem, and a lot of it. Goes, I'm using "problem" in quotes because they made it up. But a lot of this goes back to uh, actually, is created. The problem was created in the U.S., in my opinion. And what happened is uh, between the Bush and Obama administrations, we had this uh, issue called Operation Choke Point. This was a concer- Operation Choke Point was a concerted effort on behalf of the Obama administration to leverage their power over the banks to uh, push businesses they didn't like out of business, whether it was, um, you know, legal gun and all legal businesses, by the way, gun sales, certain types of money service businesses, um, dispensaries. Basically, what happened is these businesses either couldn't get bank accounts or had their bank accounts closed. And at the same time, they were forcing banks overseas that needed connections to um, correspondent banks in the United States to either police those accounts or shut them uh, shut them off. And I can tell you, because I used to work in the remittance business, absolute horror stories created as a result of this. And this is a predecessor to what we now call the travel rule in money service business land. And, and the rules that apply to crypto custody in most countries are mostly stem from money service business rules and remittance rules, because uh, it was the closest thing we had in order to overlay on top of crypto. And the banks ask for source of funds as a result of these travel rules. 
And it's the U.S. flexing its muscle to police the world, really starting mostly with choke point. And it's never gone away. Now, Congress basically did an investigation and said this was completely illegal, what you were doing, 100% illegal, right? And everybody knew it at the time. Everybody still knows it. But no one is going to stand up to the FDIC and the OCC and, and the Department of Justice and go, fuck you, let's go to Supreme Court and fight over the travel rule. No one is going to do that. Not with you know their, their balance sheet money anyway. It's going to take some neutral third party that is a nonprofit to do that. So even though you know, coming out of the Obama administration, later in that administration, they, they, in theory, stopped the practice at the regulator level, the damage had already been done. The banks are paranoid, right? They get regular audits by the FDIC uh, in the United States, which is the primary uh, overseer of, of most banking entities in the United States that provide insurance. They're more afraid of them than they are their state or, or federal regulators even, because without that FDI insurance, they're dead. And so all of those previous rules, quote unquote rules, prevail. And you're paying the price for that in the UK. Meaning if there was no choke point in the United States, my guess is your account would not have been shut off in the UK. I believe that. Um, right. and, and that's the un, that unintended consequences of concentrated power in the United States vis-a-vis -vis our banking system and basically having the world's reserve currency and Bretton Woods and all of that. Right. Okay. All right. Well, before we start talking about future stuff, another thing, Simon, would be good to touch on just for other people to hear is, can you talk about, at a structural level, some of the primary issues with uh, current banking, with uh, fractional reserve lending, the issues that causes? Uh, can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I'm, uh, if I go back to my economics days at school, we were taught that banks were intermediaries between borrowers and lenders. Um, so, you know, first grade economics, you're taught that uh, grandma is saving um, and somebody else needs to borrow to buy a house and the bank puts these uh, together. Um, later, you learn in second year economics this concept called a multiplier effect, which is um, that actually the deposits uh, can be multiplied um, and uh, you are taught this concept of velocity of money, which is that uh, if uh, a loan is taken in, and then you spend it, and then that gets deposited at a bank, and then get, that goes through the banking system. The more uh, velocity, the more um, the more money is created. Um, and so, this later got um, turned into something they call fractional reserve banking, um, which is where you can uh, the bank can hold a fraction of the money, and they can collateralize it up, uh, they can lend it up, um, and uh, more money gets created. Now we actually have no fraction and no reserve because the fraction that they have to hold can be held in other types of assets, um, which is actually created um, in the same Ponzi scheme style that traditional money is created. Um, and so um, this whole concept is that essentially people think that governments create money. Uh, governments or central banks, people conflate the two together. Um, but central banks create cash and coins. Private banks create digital currency, and that is a digital representation of the government's currency. So if you log into your online banking and you see that you have 10,000 pounds or dollars or euros, um, it is actually backed by an equal amount of somebody else's debt. And every, every time somebody borrows money from a bank, 
a bank has the ability to um, do what's called double accounting. They can put both an asset and a liability on their balance sheet. And every time you borrow money from a bank, it creates new digital currency. So banks were actually the inventors of digital currency. Bitcoin just tried to find a way of doing it where you could own it, spend it, um, and the supply couldn't be changed. Now, once banks are the creators of digital currency, you end up in a Ponzi scheme style environment where in order to have more money, because almost all digital currency is created and backed by debt, um, you have to have more debt. And so um, you find more and more financial innovation, um, which is you know, uh, student loan uh, products, credit card products, more and more innovation to try and drive people into consumer debt. Um, greater business debt, and then the last one is government debt and then central bank debt, uh, because you have to continually increase this money supply uh, to keep the economy alive. And that causes um, lots and lots of problems. Now, if you want less debt, you have to have less money, which causes depressions and recessions um, and the business cycle, essentially. You try and get people into debt to stimulate the economy. And then the people that took on the debt what do you do to try and this bogey cause inflation comes along? Um, and so they try to cool down inflation by putting up interest rates. And that means that you are sending the people that save the economy bankrupt because you want them to default on their debt to shrink the money supply so the prices come down and you have this just general business cycle. Now, when people are using banking, they've got no idea that any of this is happening. But because banks are the creators of that money, they also have all this responsibility to ensure um, that they are not laundering the proceeds of crime and all these uh, other things that come along. Um, and so when you have money at a bank, uh, the bank has to file suspicious activity reports to the regulators if they think there's something suspicious. And uh, then that has to wait for the investigation to end. And so in the end, you end up in a scenario where the bank is actually creating this digital representation of the government's money. It is backed by the world's largest regulated Ponzi scheme um, that has to have financial innovation in order to perpetuate debt. You can't spend that money freely uh, because you need to provide all the documentation um, and prove that this is not illicit means. Um, and, and therefore, when you deposit that money with the bank, they become the legal owner of that money. Um, and so that's why you have things like bail-ins and bail-outs, because that money is theirs, it's not yours. They just promise to repay you that money um, should you meet their requirements and provide them with all the documentation. And just to, just to riff on one thing Simon's saying, though, when you file a suspicious activity report with the regulator, uh, it's not investigated automatically. It goes into a big pile. And there are, in Western banks in the aggregate, file hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these, they call them SARS, suspicious activity reports, a year. And the reason is, is just what I just said. There's too many of them. Basically, it's now become easier for the banks by default to, to file a suspicious activity report or file a SAR pretty much regardless of what you're doing, either if the transaction is above a certain amount, if it's for a certain country, country they don't like, if your name is associated with Bitcoin. And so what they can tell the regulators, hey, we filed the SAR. There's a, the mountain of data is there. It's your problem. And what that means is, is that you should assume that the government basically has real-time access to all of your transaction data because anything that represents any kind of interesting transaction has probably found its way into a SAR now. 
And what will happen is then later on, if they think you're a criminal or have reason to suspect you're a criminal, then they'll go back and look at the SAR reports and filter through that and then say to the bank, oh, I need more information on this person. Or if by some bizarre chance they didn't file a SAR, which is unlikely these days, uh, they'll say to the bank, why didn't you file a SAR in the first place? And then the first thing that's going to happen is your account's going to get shut off, right? Um, right? That doesn't really happen much because trust me, they've already filed the SARs. And, and, and so it, it's so out of control. The, the banks and the government, from an information perspective at least, are the same. You should assume that they are basically the same. And, and, and that's not significantly different in crypto land because once you're dealing with a third-party custodian, you know, a lot of the same rules do apply. The only difference is we're not dealing in traditional fiat shitcoins uh, as a course of business. That's that's the biggest benefit of, of the two worlds. And you can move around without touching their specific bank-owned system. Uh, but at the end of the day, they try to put the same regulatory overlay on top of us that they've put on top of the traditional FIs, the financial institutions. Yeah, even worse, so we've got to screen all the addresses as well. And then you've right. got the immutable records of the blockchain. We've got to slow down all of our, you know, our biggest complaint as a business is nothing to do with the service we're providing. It's slowing down our customers because of all the regulations that we have to adhere to. Um, you know, we could offer a fantastic service, but, you know, in order to comply with all these regulations, we just, we've, you know, we have to crucify our relationship with our, our investors and our deposit. And I, I bash the banks a lot, but, you know, they have to do this. You know, this is yeah. a, this is systemic. and well, uh, Yeah, but I used to think that the biggest challenge for Bitcoin was scalability. I talked about it all the time. I no longer think that's true. I think that by right. far, the number one issue for Bitcoin is fungibility. And if Bitcoin doesn't deal with this issue, you are effectively going to have a bifurcated Bitcoin world where you have all of this money that comes from China, Bitcoin, I mean, that comes from China, places that, you know, FinCEN doesn't like, maybe Iran. It got touched by somebody inadvertently via an unwhitelisted address six transactions back, which, by the way, happens with paper money all the time. It's just it's untraceable. OK, yeah. uh, with drugs and other things. I mean, just look, at, do a forensic analysis on the average paper money. It's unbelievable. Fecal matter, drugs and all kinds of other shit. But you can you can you can trace Bitcoin today because it's not truly fungible yet. Meaning one Bitcoin is not really one Bitcoin yeah. in terms of its history. If we don't address we, meaning the technical community doesn't address this fungibility problem, in my humble opinion, it's going to get really bad. And you're going to have different uh, UTXOs actually worth different amounts of money in dollars. UTXOs basically being the outputs that haven't been spent that can trace their history in a quote unquote clean way from the government's perspective versus a dirty way, which, by the way, is just some arbitrary distinction that some overseer made up, which is completely orthogonal to the idea of a decentralized currency with no off switch. The only way, the only way that I can see to stop this problem from happening is to integrate true fungibility into Bitcoin. And once you've done that, yeah. they have nothing to say about it. Well, this is what the Monero guys have been talking about quite a bit. If you follow their conversation. Of course. Yeah. And and look, <laughs> yeah, whatever people say about 
altcoins. Monero is one that's kind of interesting. There are people who are maxis who actually don't mind Monero, but the Monero argument on fungibility is an important one. Um, right. This so is why I'm you, a Bill, proponent of altcoin, though, is, is, is not because I believe any of these coins are going to exist 20 years from now. I have no idea. Maybe they're all going to be dead. But they're showing us from a technology perspective what can work in a way that's lower risk for what matters. And what matters ultimately is Bitcoin. And so if we can learn on someone else's dime that you can create a fungible token like a Monero over 15 years and then move pieces of that tech or, or Litecoin integrates Mimblewimble in a way that we see that over many years works, that's fantastic, right? So we, we, we need to rethink some of this maximalism as it relates. You can't just test this stuff on a testnet. Right, you need to test stuff on a test net, mm. but you also need the ability to test stuff in the real world in a way that is lower risk. And that's and anyway, I don't want to make this about all coins, well, but that, well, well, you that, get my no, point. No, 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 no. But but the fungibility, the, the, the sorry, son, the fungibility thing is important, right? Hundred uh, percent. There are going to be people people listen to this who don't know what fungibility is. They don't know why it's an issue. Why why do technologies such as coin joins not solve this problem? Is it is it because they're still not fungible and some places, some exchanges as such are blocking those coins because they can tell they've been coin joined? Uh, is it because the technology itself is too difficult to use? Is there a way of uh, bringing fungibility to Bitcoin natively in a way that people don't have to think about it? Right. Well, first of all, let's take a step back. Coin join, yeah. the biggest issue with that service is, is you're trusting a third party that that from reg many regulators' perspective, is a licensed money service or a licensable money service business, right? Whether you agree with that or not, that's a problem. That's orthogonal to the idea of creating fungibility in the first place. Well, wait a minute. Fungibility in money shouldn't mean I have to go to a licensed money service business to create the damn fungibility in the first place. That's ridiculous, mm -hmm. okay? So it needs to be integrated at the layer one protocol level. Otherwise, some government is going to figure out how to inject themselves into that process of creating fungibility in the first place, as opposed to making it a core tenant of the protocol. But if you want to take a step back and, and explain what fungibility means in very simple terms, think about it this way. If Peter has a dollar, Simon has a dollar, and I have a dollar, and we start trading them amongst each other, right? They all have serial numbers on them. But by and large, when you go to a store, go to a, 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 and hand them the dollar for your latte, well, probably $10 for a latte, uh, they don't look at the serial numbers to basically go look at a list to say, is this a good dollar or a bad dollar? Okay, We can do that easily with crypto so that you can trace where that Bitcoin came from to decide if it's a good Bitcoin or a bad Bitcoin. And FinCEN, which is our overseer in the United States from Treasury Department, which basically maintains the list of bad actors, countries you can't do business with, terrorists, basically has now created a blacklist of crypto addresses that you have to report transactions from, right? And potentially can't even deal with because they're associated in their opinion with illicit activity. There's been no trial, no publicly published evidence to my knowledge that they are bad. We simply have to accept from FinCEN's perspective that they're bad. Uh, otherwise we can't be in business if you're if you're a custodian. Um, and, and so that's, they don't do the same with serial numbers for paper money to my knowledge. OK, uh, if they did, Starbucks would be out of business because it would be completely untenable to sit there while there's 75 people in line to process the serial number for every single dollar bill that was coming through the store. Right. But they put that onus on us in, in crypto land when we when we move cryptocurrencies around. 
the only way to deal with this is to make it impossible to track this at the, the uh, Bitcoin address level and, and just make it so that you cannot tell the difference between your Satoshi and my Satoshi. How big, big an engineering um, problem is this? You know, have you discussed with, this with any core developers? I don't hear it talked about a lot. I hear it talked a lot about by the Monero guys, but I don't hear it talked a lot about with the Bitcoin people. Like you've made the biggest case for it, I think I've ever I've ever had in any of my interviews. Why, yeah, why, why is why is this not an issue at the moment? Um, look, I, I would I would strongly encourage you to have Charlie Lee back on the show and okay. get into uh, the Mimblewimble uh, extension block uh, that they've implemented uh, that ha- enhances scaling and privacy for Litecoin and why he's so bullish on it and why he thinks it needs to potentially make its way into uh, Bitcoin. I don't think, uh, and again, I, I have a degree in computer science, but I'm a little outdated on this. I have read their paper. I think I understand it. I don't think it addresses fungibility the way you could with like Monero, but it gets it's it's a more scalable solution. Monero, the, the challenge with Monero is you pay a, a huge size. price in, in scalability, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, and, and so it's like everything else in a decentralized system. There's trade-offs upon trade-offs upon trade-offs. And, and so, right, we need to maintain security, not take 10 steps backwards in terms of scalability, but definitely solve this fungibility problem. Mimblewimble seems to be a reasonable trade-off to creating uh, scalable privacy, um, and I would strongly encourage you to have Charlie back on the show, maybe with a core dev at the same time to kind of go back and forth on this uh, in a way that people can mm. understand. Charlie's pretty good at putting things in a way that the you know the average person can also understand. Well, Charlie's an engineer as well. So yeah, I'll, right. I'll definitely take a look at it. I'll definitely take a look at it if I think it's important and useful for, for sure. Do you, Simon, do you have anything to add on this fungibility thing uh, before I move on? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing is that the two-tiered Bitcoin price um, ha- has existed for a long time already. So. Um, in 2013, I used to operate a mining farm in Iceland, um, and we used to sell virgin bitcoins to financial institutions at a huge premium uh, because they needed to know that they came directly from the mining rig um, from a miner that uh, had the correct paperwork and the correct regulated structure um, so that it could meet their compliance um, requirements in order to make it into their financial institution. And so they're willing to pay a huge uh, premium for that. Now, the challenge with um, the protocol level solutions, and um, firstly, I do think they're working on it. And um, it's been a long debate in Bitcoin and there's lots of solutions uh, being proposed. So I think it's a, it is an area that uh, lots of developers are really interested in looking at. Um, but, uh, you know, the, 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 the solutions of, um, at the protocol level, the challenge is, so, you know, as a regulated financial institution, we have to attach a risk score to every transaction that comes in. And every bank and financial institution and exchange, if they're not doing it already, has to do the same thing. Um, and so when an address comes from a certain um, source, i.e. it went through some kind of mixing service, then it has to have a higher risk score. And so therefore, this whole fungibility thing is truly the crux of the future. Now, it's a double-edged sword as well because, um, you know, my my biggest challenge with uh, Monero has always been it's it's 
it's a brilliant utility token, but I've always thought that every exchange is just not going to be able to make a listing in it in the future. So I've always thought it won't have a price in the future other than the black market. Um, and this really brings into the second solution, um, which as much as the Bitcoin maximalists may um, hate uh, the topic, but it is the real way to take the policing of the middleman out of the equation, is to take the middleman out of the equation. Um, And that's why it's, um, you know, it's just been amazing to watch these uh, decentralized exchanges where you don't have to have the police in the middle. And it brings back law enforcement where they have to do the duty of responsibility to track crime. And you simply trade peer to peer. So for me, getting Bitcoin to the point where it can catch up with a lot of the innovation that's happening in the Ethereum um, ecosystem is, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm more than happy to be patient. I'm happy for Ethereum to do all the experimentation. And I know that Bitcoin was never optimized for it, um, but the, we do need these solutions in the future because it is the fact that a middle person has to be there, that it creates this burden of responsibility to the middle person. And they go to prison if they get it wrong. You know, being a CEO, uh, Bill will te- you know, say, if you being a CEO of a regulated institution is, is a bit of a dangerous game. Um, you know, you have to take this responsibility very seriously, find, um, you know, all sorts of stuff. So it, it is, um, it is the, the crux of the conversation, but why the decentralized stuff is so important to have financial yep. products where you can just operate peer-to-peer um, and take the need for that financial institution out in the middle. That's right. I'll also say, look, my team doesn't like it when I come on shows like this and talk about and I rail against choke points and the travel rule uh, and certain aspects of money service business regulation. And at the end of the day, I care about their opinion on this. But I, I love America from the perspective of land of the free, home of, home of the brave, send us your poor, tire, you're hungry. That's the America I love. I don't like Orwellian America, 1984 America. And, and I'll fight for that, even if it means I become a prior within the regulatory community, um, which I, maybe I am, I don't know, I don't really care. Uh, our customers don't care for sure. Um, you know, we're still going to we're still going to obey the laws, <laughs> come hell or high water. Uh, but you know, someone has to make people aware of the fact that the original version of Bitcoin, as it was intended, created holes that have now created big long-term problems for its viability as long as the you know euro dollar system exists if that system do doesn't exist because well fungibility um, is a two-pronged problem from a certain perspective right if the dollar goes away and everything's bitcoin part of the problem goes away uh, because the regulators may have less of a role to play because in theory everybody can just hold their own bitcoin but as long as you have a, a on and off rail based system, because you have to do a, even ephemeral transactions at some point, you know, when the dollar's on its deathbed and we use it for ephemeral transactions, you're still going to have to come in and out of the dollar. And those regulators will have a role to play in that. And so as long as they do, we're going to have this fungibility problem. And the bank's going to be around for a long time still. So it behooves us to deal with this fungibility problem uh, on, on many, many levels. I definitely will have to. Um, I would definitely have to go into that a bit further and get. The, I, I'll talk to Charlie and I'll, I'll talk to someone on the core dev team and, and see where we're at with that. Next up, I talked to Simon and Bill more about Bitcoin versus the banks. But before that, 
I have a message from my amazing show sponsors. Okay, let's kick off with sportsbet.io. And I'm going to take out a little cheeky bet today. Liverpool second leg versus Real Madrid. Right, we lost the first leg. Very disappointing, but I think we're going to do it. I think we're going to turn them over at Anfield, even without the crowd. So I'm going to be sticking a cheeky bet on like that. Look, sportsbet.io is the best place for online gaming because they accept Bitcoin, getting to know the company very well. And as soon as the planes are flying, I'm going to get over to Estonia and spend some time with them. We've got a competition company. You know that. Got to iron out those details. But they are also the shirt sponsor of Southampton. They're the betting partner of Arsenal. They're putting in the Bitcoin logo and Bitcoin in front of football fans and sports fans around the world. Got to love what they're doing. Now, with Sportsbet.io, you have every market you could possibly be interested in. They cover football, tennis, American sports, motorsports. They even cover esports. And for new customers, they always have a range of promotions available. So if you want to find out more, please do head over to sportsbet.io forward slash promotions, which is S-P-O-R-T-S-B-E-T dot I-O forward slash promotions. Next up, we have Exodus Wallet. Very fitting for this show because I've been talking in these ads about the fact that the banks are closing me down. Now, I can't get away from the fact that I have to use pounds and dollars to pay people and get paid for things, but I also am increasingly running parts of my business on Bitcoin. You know, I get paid in Bitcoin by sponsors. I also get to pay people in Bitcoin. And hopefully soon, I'm going to be paying some of my staff in Bitcoin as well, which is very cool. Now, I needed a wallet solution because my accountant was shouting at me. End of each month, she was like, who are you spending this Bitcoin with? What are you spending it on? Yada, yada. And I wasn't keeping details. So when Exodus got in touch, I had to play with that wallet. I was like, this is the wallet for me. I can use this. My accountant will be happy. So if you want to check it out, please do head over to Exodus.com or search for Exodus in the Google Apple app stores. And lastly, but never least, is your security. It is Casa. It's about getting your security shit together. Now, I'm coming up to my one-year anniversary of being a Casa customer, which is amazing, a whole year. And I have, you know, it's just been one of those things I knew I had to do for a long time. I got it done. I've had so much peace of mind with it. I am fully protected from my own stupid mistakes, in-person attacks, device failures, and all those things which could lead to me losing my Bitcoin, which is a great relief. If you have not got your security together and you're seeing Bitcoin Moon and you're sat on a big fat stack and you haven't done this, you really, really do need to go and check out Casa. And look, if you've got any questions, you can email me, you can hit me up in my DMs. And Casa does have a product for every Bitcoiner. With Casa Gold, you get triple the security of a hardware wallet, and that is only $10 a month. With Casa Platinum, you get their 305 multi-sig. And with Casa Diamond, which I am about to upgrade to, you get a customized personal security review, inheritance planning, and of course, their best in class in security. There is no better time to upgrade your Bitcoin security with Bitcoin at $64,000. If you want to find out more, head over to keys.casa, which is K-E-Y-S dot C-A-S-A. I guess the thing is, though, we are moving to this more, I'm going to say Bitcoin slash crypto based financial world. I know some people get triggered by me saying crypto, but... Like I can see scenarios where I've said it. There's certain scenarios where I would definitely use Monero over Bitcoin. I could I could tell you the type of transaction I would, and I also see like a bit of a use case for um, stable coins. I forget all the other stuff. I'm not really really interested in it. But we are moving to this kind of new financial system where we actually don't need the banks. We talked about this before, Bill. I mean, one of the few things missing from the crypto-based banks is is the ability to direct debit. But yep. what we have got is this financial infrastructure that's now being built out. So four years ago, when I was first studying Bitcoin, you know, we had the ability to onboard and get Bitcoin. We suddenly got 
all these borrowing and lending markets, which is super yep. interesting. We've got crypto cards coming. We've got essentially, I think there's you can make a small argument that Coinbase, Arbra, Kraken, Gemini, BlockFi are are pulling together the pieces of the bank, bank of the future, yep. really. <laughs> That's yeah. what they are. They're, they're, they're pulling those things together, but it's going to come with these trade-offs. And the trade-offs are, okay, I custody my own money, but if I make a mistake, it's, it's my fault. But by being that kind of almost like self-sovereign, you know, I accept I don't have to, the bank in my business. So it's it's this, I guess, a lot of the innovation we've talked about, like the historical uh, innovation where companies have lost out, where we mentioned Blockbuster and we're talking about now with the, the banks, it is essentially this evolution of money. Where yeah. it's, money's broken, yeah. The stack is going to evolve in an analogous way, but that's crypto-centric. And let me explain what I mean by that. In the, in the yeah. bank world, we have the Federal Reserve, we have regional banks, we have the retail banks, when we have layer two, which is Visa, PayPal, you know, other service providers. Okay. Um, and in the crypto world, you know, we have the miners, we have nodes, we have, you know, people like exchanges, uh, wallets slash hardware wallets. Uh, and you know, we are going to have layer two. Now, what's really interesting is, uh, as it comes to layer two, everybody talks about, um, you know, the, the the crypto-centric layer two. But Visa, I think, is going to have a critical role to play in crypto layer two. Visa and MasterCard, but Visa is much further along. I, I wish American Express as an average investor would get there, and they're not quite there yet. But, but, but Visa has been most public about their role as it relates to layer two. And so what's going to happen is, is that, uh, you're going to have all of these kind of crypto-centric banking services, you know, Abra, uh, BlockFi, you know, in, in the Asia Crypto.com, uh, that basically offer the ability to to have a brokerage to manage your crypto wealth, the ability to borrow against your crypto, the ability to pay uh, again, using that borrowing maybe, so that you're actually not spending your Bitcoin. Maybe you actually borrow dollar shitcoins, pay, right, and your Bitcoin hasn't moved, right, using Visa Rails which is super interesting. And one of the key aspects of why I think Visa is so interesting here is that they're no longer owned by the banks. Years ago, they were owned by their member banks, right? As a public entity, they don't report to anybody but their shareholders now. So outside the US, a crypto company can actually become a principal member of Visa now. And in theory, settle crypto transactions with retailers without ever touching the banks. And that becomes, that's what I mean by it's now a viable layer two solution. So when you add all of this up, you end up with an analogous stack that actually doesn't require the traditional banks anymore, even to pay your bills in a way that doesn't force you to touch your Bitcoin. And that's what I want personally. I want to be able to pay my bills without a bank, without having to spend my Bitcoin. And if I can have a 25-day loan, which is what a credit card gives me, Right when I pay my bill with a credit card, maybe get some miles or whatever that side benefit might be, or some extra Bitcoin if that's possible. That mm-hmm. doesn't scale infinitely, but maybe in the short term I can get some extra Bitcoin. Even better, and that's what's coming. What what is missing in the stack? Well, we need a, a layer two that's scalable and that integrates with crypto in order to pay. And it's probably going to be stablecoin based at first. It's probably going to be Ethereum based at first. And I don't, it may actually be Ethereum based forever. I don't know. As long as we have a dollar, 
right? That you're going to want to pay in for that. What I call that, I keep using this phrase ephemeral transaction to explain what I mean. An ephemeral transaction is a transaction that happens quickly, one and done. I pay for my groceries. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, I pay for something, right? As long as the dollar is the basis for that ephemeral transaction, it probably makes sense for that to happen in a stable coin because then I can stay in quote unquote, the crypto world. And we need that layer two scalability in order for those payments to work for everyone. That's why I'm so excited about Visa getting into this world because they've already laid those rails over 50 years, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and and so the P2P rails that are being built into Bitcoin are interesting, but people want to hoard Bitcoin right now. I don't want to pay with my Bitcoin. I'd rather mm-hmm. pay in dollars as long as the dollar still exists. When the dollar doesn't exist anymore because Bitcoin is so valuable, and this is what the Austrian economics predicted, once it's been hoarded to the point where everything else doesn't exist, Right, that deflationary asset will then be used for payments. Right now, like Michael Saylor says, I'd rather borrow against it if I can. Makes yeah. way more sense because the price is going to keep going up. So that's what's missing. What, what about you, Simon? From from your perspective, what, what it, where do you think we are in the stack to having that begin to that point where you can trustlessly, well, as, as best possible, but you can bank without having to go into a bank. Uh, and I say that to the point whereby. I can run my business without a bank if I didn't if I wanted to. I can pretty much get paid and pay people in Bitcoin. I can pay my staff if I really want to do it. It's a bit of a pain, but I can really do it. But there are certain things I can't do on a personal level. I can't pay my mortgage in Bitcoin. I can't pay my bills really. I could probably pay my bills on a crypto credit card that takes from it. But how far do you think we are from that point where you don't actually need a bank, and you can access all the services that you want? Well, like, um, I I often wind up um, the person that refused to accept Bitcoin when it was $3,000 for the purchase of my my property, um, because it's now worth, you know, into the hundreds of millions that uh, they could have had. Um, And that's what drives uh, Bitcoin adoption, is when they calculate what they would have had if they accepted the payment in Bitcoin. But... Really, um, there's a lot you can do without a bank, but I still need a bank account at the moment. So I think the missing layer here is the crypto-friendly bank. And the crypto-friendly bank will come. Um, It's just a question of putting together models uh, whereby you can interact. And again, you know, um, I I do it at the private banking level. And at the private banking level, there's lots of crypto-friendly banks. They don't like to be, they don't like to say who they are because it will cause problems with their clearing banks. Um, and so half of the challenge is that there's many banks that want to work with you, um, but they also want to keep it a secret so they can't market their ability to work uh, with you. But at the same time, uh, we're having the crypto-friendly banks being built and, uh, you know, Kraken becoming a bank and all sorts of stuff. Um, so we, we do need the crypto-friendly bank. The reason for that is because Unless everyone starts accepting stable coins, which um, I think uh, is certainly something that could happen, uh, especially when central bank digital currencies get launched. Um, but I think the bankless world is when you have financial technology companies built on top of a central bank digital currency with Bitcoin as an exit to the traditional financial system. Um, then you can do everything, but you will just accept that the fiat currency, my central bank digital currency, um, it is um, awesome for me paying my mortgage because my mortgage is priced in dollars and I don't want to take currency risk when paying 
my mortgage because I could end up broke or, um, you know, I'm just gambling um, in terms of how much my mortgage is going to cost me. No one wants to do that. Um, plus, there are some um, other challenges, which is the tax side. So uh, many people in crypto forget the tax side, um, but I spent a lot of time making sure that I was setting up the correct um, you know, tax-efficient structures because now tax authorities all around the world, just Bitcoin and the crypto market has gone past $2 trillion and every government in the world is broke. They're looking for their next money grab and their next money grab comes from subpoenaing the exchanges to get all of the data so that they can find all the people that didn't pay their tax. And so because most countries are treating Bitcoin as property, every time you spend it on your Bitcoin debit cards, you're creating a taxable event. Um, Every time you're doing something with your Bitcoin, they're not treating it as a currency. Um, And so the tax side could become the the, the biggest challenge um, as more and more tax authorities recognize there's a mountain of tax collection that I can get here. Yep. That's why I think I think the borrow against crypto is going to be a booming business as long as government fiat exists. Uh, it just makes so much more sense to borrow against dollars, get that 25-day loan, continually pay it back. And um, you know, there's no tax implications. You continue to hold your crypto. Uh, why would you want to sell an asset that's like Michael Saylor says that's gaining 200% a year when you can borrow against it? And you know, invest in other assets that are going to be appreciative, or basically deal with the commodities of your life, groceries and whatnot, uh, and 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 use that that Bitcoin as a continual source of you know radiation into your life in the form of, of ephemeral you know dollars, right? That you can just spend on the fly and not pay taxes against it. Uh, it just makes perfect sense. And th- this is the interesting thing, Bill. This brings us full circle because. You know, um, Bitcoin is driving a savings-based economy, an equity-based economy. Absolutely. Low yep. velocity of money, but high levels of savings, generating right. a wealth effect where people can reinvest. So, you know, it is the libertarian dream. It is the Austrian economics um, philosophy of create wealth through savings and then spend uh, based upon that. But here's the interesting thing. Um, this takes us full circle because now everyone's collateralizing their crypto Um, in order to drive the debt-based economy because it's driving people into borrowing. But there is a critical difference. Um, All of these loans are collateralized. They're equity-based. It's wealthy people that have savings that are looking to pull money out. And then because that's scaling down more and more and more, people are taking a tiny bit of their fractions of Bitcoin um, and, uh, and getting loans on that. So we're, it, it's really interesting because this was the peer-to-peer economy that I got right. excited about decade, you know, over a decade ago, yep. where I thought, well, what if you could have a bank um, and you could have peer-to-peer loans and people could own their own money and they could decide to put it into savings products rather than the banks deciding? Um, and we have the, the Bank to the Future vision is being created by all these companies like Abra, like Kraken, like all these other companies um, plugging their their both decentralized and centralized services together, and just driving this wealth effect based upon equity and collateral, which is the exact opposite of the traditional financial system, where it rewards you the deeper in debt you go, the more irresponsible you are financially, the better you can play that system. Do you think we're going to end up therefore with a two t- two tier system, which is those people who got onto Bitcoin and those people who didn't? 
and it just creates these two separate systems. No, I don't. You don't? I don't. I, I think we're going to have massive wealth redistribution because what's going to happen is, is when you can't print money anymore, um, you're going to have no choice but to spend this deflationary assets. And as a result, it's going to per- permeate its way uh, into every aspect of everyone's life. And it's going to basically create a, a, a massive flattening of wealth over decades, which is the opposite of what happens when you're in a late stage debt cycle. I actually uh, presented after, after Ray Dalio at a private conference this weekend, and he talked about the fact that we're in a late stage debt cycle, which he always does. Uh, and by the way, he said people should be buying Bitcoin now for the first time that I've ever heard to say. And he, he also did? said he did. Uh, traditionally, this he said traditionally this does not end well. Uh, meaning, you know, in the 30s it didn't end well, in the 1800s didn't end well. Meaning, the implication, of course, is it's led to war as bond markets collapse, which is what's happening now. And in, in, in when the 60/40, you know, uh, asset allocation model is dead because bond markets are dead, it traditionally has not ended well. Okay, but we have a solution this time. Right, that Austrian economists predicted would work, and it's working. But it creates over time when you remove the inflationary assets by default wealth redistribution, as opposed to inflationary assets that in that late stage debt cycle actually create massive wealth concentration for the rich at the expense of the middle class, which is what's happening right now. And I'm super excited about the prospect for that. And I think we're now seeing. Right. Uh, and the premise of my talk, by the way, was follow up from the TED talk I did 12 years or 10 years ago, where I said maybe Bitcoin is the answer to, to having a replacement for the dollar as the global reserve currency. I think we now finally can have that conversation, not only with ourselves, we accept that, but with other people without being laughed at. And all of it leads to wealth redistribution, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not too convinced that Bitcoin distributes wealth. Um, much better. Um, certainly the barrier to get in. I mean, the one thing I did like about, you know, take the 2017 ICO bubble, all the young people were thinking, you know, say what you want, there was a bunch of scams. It was a, a really, um, you know, bubble crazy moment in crypto history. And we've been through a few of them. But the one thing I did like about that is people that were never, that were just destined to go to university, be deep in student debt, or not even get that far, just take credit cards, um, and they were in debt. They never thought about savings and investing. Um, And call it a speculative bubble, whatever you want to call it, call it gambling. It was a lot of those. But for the first time, because this industry attracted that younger generation's attention, um, they started actually thinking about wealth generation, savings, investing. Um, They got into the wrong things. They got into pump and dump scams. They probably ended up with no Bitcoin at the end of it. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, they, was, they, they were never going to be saving. They were never going to be investing. They weren't going to buy stocks. You know, obviously, we've had the Robin Hood generation where it's easier to get in, but it's still, it's still not as accessible yeah. uh, to these people. But I do really fear for the people. You know, um, my dad, he's never going to buy Bitcoin, would never buy Bitcoin. He's going to be all right because his son bought Bitcoin and I'll look after him. But um, there are a lot of people that are going to wait until Bitcoin is a medium of exchange, unit of account and store of value until they buy it. And at that stage, Bitcoin will just act like gold, preserve your wealth. And I think that there's not enough people that are speculating on the wealth effect because they're waiting for everything to be uh, perfect and rubber stamped and um, uh, until they actually do it. And eventually, I think Bitcoin does act like gold. And gold never made you money. 
Um, it preserves your money. Right. Yeah. That's why that's why the wealthy buy you know expensive art, not because they think the yeah. value is going up, because they think the value of the dollar is going down, and it actually preserves that that wealth in the meantime. And 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 Bitcoin is simply infinitely better at it than art or gold. So I, I do agree with that. I also think that you know death is the ultimate whitewash here, right? I don't want any of my relatives to die either. We all die, right? It's probably the one thing that guarantees progress, right? Is that the people who ultimately are going to hold us back with, oh, it used to be better the old way, they're not going to be around in 75 years. And that is probably the best guarantor we have of, of this type of progress. And um, in other words, it's going to be my kids as kids that see it as intuitively obvious that the government shouldn't be in the money business. Well, and, and we're all kind of relaying that message right now to you know, our children. I'm certainly relaying it to mine <laughs> with great difficulty, but you know, trying to get it across to them why Bitcoin's important and trying to teach them those letter- lessons. But I feel like you've had it, Bill. You've traveled with work. You've had it as well, Simon. You've traveled. There's certain places you go to where the Bitcoin argument's much easier to make. Uh, but, but were you at Le Bitconf? I can't remember. Um, no, I was not. Yeah. But, but you're in South America. You're surrounded by yeah. Argentinians and Venezuelans. Oh, yeah, yeah, all it's the time. It's very I mean, easy to make. It's very yeah, easy. I've seen it again uh, today. Yeah. It, Lebanon, let, let me get it up. Because Lebanon is back in the news again today, already uh, been through one currency collapse. Uh, yeah. As rampant inflation takes hold, Lebanon is at risk of collapse two days ago. Um, yeah. The story is very easy to make to people from Lebanon. It's very easy to sure. make to people from Venezuela. It's very, well, kind of, uh, uh, the middle class is. It's very easy to make to people in Argentina. It's a, I'm still struggling to make it to my friends, right? They know I'm involved in Bitcoin. Bill, we're friends on Facebook. You see me post every um, mm. episode. No one, no one really cares. <laughs> but And I try and have the conversation, though. I was like, you do realize what's happening, right? And they yeah. just don't care. So I, I almost feel like we, we've got to almost go through a, uh, a, a another event similar like to 2008 where people are going to get wiped out for them to understand yep. why we've been and it's coming. Bitcoin for so long. I mean, it's coming. I, I, yeah. have this, I had this spreadsheet. Uh, I have to dig it out. It was a Google sheet somebody created of hundreds, literally hundreds of fiat currencies that have died over centuries. And the reality is, and this is my, you know, my kind of standard pitch, is that every fiat currency eventually dies. Everyone. Now, some die in spectacular fashion, right? Whether it's the papier mark in, in the late 1920s or the Argentinian peso in the 80s or the Peruvian sol in the 1990s, the, the Zimbabwe dollar in, in the 2000s, the Venezuelan Bolivar in the 2010s, there's inevitably going to be an infinite number of these until, until the internet enables a perpetual replacement. And that's what we're on the cusp of. And until that happens... And everyone else is dead. There's going to be the hangers-on who will continue to say it's just easier to trust the government, and there's nothing wrong with our money. Because when you have death by a thousand cuts, and you die before the cuts kick in, which is what happens, right? With when you look at inflation versus the average lifespan, yeah, you die before those cuts that you're getting via inflation basically make you terminally ill from a financial perspective. But what happens, and I had this discussion with Peter Diamantis, you know, XPRIZE, talks about longevity and lifespan. We had this discussion on Sunday. What happens when people live to 150? 
an inflationary model doesn't work because every hundred years, the money loses another 99% of its value. <laughs> so how is that possible if, if you know, you can't store the money in, in anything, right? And so clearly- well, you could get away with it, Bill, when infl- interest rates were higher than inflation. When you could put money in the bank. I, who was it? I did an interview with Dominic Frisby. Uh, I don't know if you know him, uh, Bill. You probably know him, don't you, Simon? I know who he is. But yeah, yeah, yeah. but the point, so the point this, is, is that you can't, you can't have that now. We're in the late stage of a, of a, of a, of a, of a mm-hmm. debt cycle where you know, rates are basically negative, <laughs> never mind bigger than inflation. Right? We have this model where the government has no choice but to make inflation as high as it can, lie about yep. it, Right to maintain certain benefits. Right, the, the the more they lie about inflation, the cheaper it is to pay social benefits because the social benefit costs are tied to inflation. Right, and there's nothing else that they can do except print more money to make it happen. But we know so it's the scenario, happening. We do. We know it's happening. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, there's another guy. Right, there's another guy I go to the gym with. Uh, he's uh, he's a plumber. He's got a plumbing business. He he he's been threatening to get to Bitcoin for a while. It's one of these ones. Well, I've had the conversation with him about three times in the last three months, and he keeps saying, oh, I missed it, didn't I? I missed it. I missed it. Like, he phoned me up yesterday. He said, I've missed it, didn't I? Because um, I think it was about 30,000 when we started talking about it. And I see every time I say to him the same fucking thing, I'm like, mate, I'm not selling. If you've missed it, why am I not selling? Like, right. let's have the conversation. But he doesn't understand Bitcoin, right? He just runs his business. And I was just trying to say to him, look, you, all you need to think about is inflation. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, you run a business. Are your materials going up in cost? And he's like, yeah, up 5 to 10%. I was like, there you go. Right. This is why you need Bitcoin. Right. So I think, I think people are seeing it, Bill. It's, it's, it, but, but the death by a thousand cuts, which is you know, what you're giving an example of that's acute for your friend, is it, it's not tangible enough for the average person, right? Uh, I'm sorry, but too many people are fat and happy. And being fat and happy is not necessarily a bad thing until nobody can afford to be fat and happy anymore, which, assuming we stay on the fiat standard, is where we're headed because it's untenable. But we might be be headed for a few big cuts now rather than a death by a thousand cuts. Um, It it is the big cuts. There's there's, there's three things that drive that adoption, and it's... um, you getting your bank account shut down and you realize, yeah. oh, right, okay, I don't owe my money. Um, it's you not being able you know, um, to actually spend your money as you choose. Yeah. A bail-in. Um, you know, we, we saw that in the Cyprus bail-ins. We saw that in the WikiLeaks um, censorship. Mm-hmm. You see that in financial blockades like um, the Republican Party with Trump and everything. Um, you and uh, also when people realize that this money printing is not, in fact, free money, um, that it comes at a cost. And so you will need a 2008 style event. And unfortunately, Bitcoin is the, you know, to me, I, I have so much respect and gratitude for Bitcoin, for the opportunities it gives people. Um, but most people are only going to discover it in the most extreme and worst cases. Um, and that's why it's so much easier. That brings it back to, you know, pitching it at Le Conf um, to people that have already experienced destruction, experienced what it's like to not be able to access your money, spend your money, and have your, the value of your currency destroyed. Um, but thank God we have this now. Um, and that's what I will always be eternally grateful for, for the fact that uh, we, we have this opportunity, we have this exit. And one by one, I mean, 
you know, missing the boat. I've, I've heard that for 11 years. Um, you know, $10 was missing the boat, $100 was missing the boat, $1,000 was missing the boat, $10,000 is missing the boat, $100,000 will be missing the boat. That, that one never changes because it is, yeah. you know, the fear-driven psychological thing that I don't like. I don't, you know, I still dollar cost average today, but I, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm getting value at these prices, but I know what it means in the long term for me. Um, well, this this is an interesting point. So one of the things I, I really salute Michael Saylor for, and I've said this a few times, so if you've heard me say this on the show before, I'm really sorry. But I think more... Well, first, he's teaching people lots of different lessons. But more important than the $1 billion he borrowed at 0% to invest back in Bitcoin, I think the most important thing he does is every single month, they turn their profits into Bitcoin. Every single month. It's not the yep. 90,000 coins. It's the 150 he does. You know, or the 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 seventy five he does every month based on their profits, because it's that it's that it's not just that uh, it's you know speculative investment. I've bought a load, blah blah blah. He's he's kind of million dollar cost averaging with his company's money because he knows mm. in the future it will be worth more, and yep. it's trying to get that message across to people. And I'm I'm the same, uh, Simon. Once you've been through once you've been through a whole cycle, a four year cycle, and you've had that massive jump that big, massive jump in your net wealth, you, you, your income's still the same, right? Or, or slightly higher. So, you know, whereas I, where, when I was putting $1,000 a month maybe in, in three years ago, it made a big difference. Now it's like making a, a tiny difference, but you still do it. You've still got to do it. Yeah. But tr- it's getting that across to people. The plumber is still thinking about how do I use Bitcoin to get more pounds or how do I use Bitcoin to get more dollars? Um, yeah. When the light bulb moment is, how do I use, you know, when, when I earn fiat currency, I'm like, well, what do I buy with that? Um, and Bitcoin seems like the logical thing to buy with my, you know, um, and if I, when it comes to selling Bitcoin, it's like, well, what do I buy with my Bitcoin? I don't want to buy dollars. I don't want to buy pounds. I would buy them if I've got a bunch of expenses. Um, but so it, it is that wealth gap there that when you are living, uh, month to month, or you've got a business that's cash flow month to month. Um, unfortunately, this is the bit that you know that where I don't think it becomes a wealth distributor is because most people are just trying to figure out how to pay off that credit card and how to meet their next bill and how to meet if they've got a business, how to meet their staff costs. But Bank to the Future was our venture capitalist was Bitcoin. We never had to do, we had never had to take on venture capital because we were fortunate enough to make enough dollars to cover our operational overhead and not have to sell that Bitcoin. And we rode it the whole way through. And it was the best venture capitalist ever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I understand that. It, it, yeah, I had the whole big shift over the last year of moving my profits into Bitcoin. And I, I've essentially got a seed round on the balance sheet now, which hmm. I haven't wow. used, but there is available to me if I need it. Uh, seed round, angel round, depends what you call it. But... Yeah. yeah, I've essentially five. I've essentially four to five x what I would have on the balance sheet just yeah, by same. holding Bitcoin. And I mean, look, our treasury at Abra is, is is significantly Bitcoin, right? So it's, yeah. yeah, and a percentage wise, I'm doing better than Coinbase. <laughs> the, funny, the funny thing is, is when you know all regulators, um, they they they're challenging you know the risk based model of holding Bitcoin on your balance sheet. So you know we have to fight for the ability to do that because. They see it as such a risk, um, but uh, you know, for, for me, it's, it's the opposite. That's the Michael Saylor argument that, mm. that it's the opposite risk. Well, listen, guys, 
this has been really useful. Um, you know, I, I am really looking forward to that bank I can use that someone like Bill's going to build, which which is separates me from having that high street bank where I don't need to send any forms off, call anyone up <laughs> that I could just travel the world with. I can access my Bitcoin, and perhaps you know, perhaps it's something a bit like Strike, where I have uh, local fiat currency that exists in it. But but I am looking forward to that because. It has been a pain losing my accounts. It's been a pain transferring all my direct debit. Like, it's all been a pain. I think we're getting there step by step. Um, yep. And I really appreciate the work that both of you are doing. Um, is there anything you want to say before we close out, Simon? Um, no, just uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. You know, today I always Finally. end in the, in the same way, which is, you know, everybody, you are alive at one of the most interesting and exciting times in financial history. Um, and although some people, this is the worst time in financial history, um, for others, it's the best time in financial history. And it's because you're probably playing in the wrong financial system. So, you know, if, if you are deep in debt, then please, one, one principle that I, that I had, because um, before founding Bank to the Future, um, my last credit card bill was actually flying over to the Bitcoin conference. But I was... You know, in trying to build Bank to the Future, I was about £100,000, which is about $150,000 in debt. Um, wow. And the one thing that I did do is I decided rather than pay off my debt, I would pay myself first a percentage of whatever comes in and use that just for investing. And uh, then eventually the assets paid off all the debt. But I think most people try and save their way and then they never up investing. Um, and this alternative financial system is um, it rewards the, it rewards the saver over the long term. It punishes the traders. You know the traders are the ones that lose money in our industry. They pay all the tax. They get themselves in situations where they have to sell all their Bitcoin because they got on the wrong side of a trend. And so you know this 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 side of the industry it does reward the saver and the innovation and companies like Abra and all the other companies we're investing in. I'm just truly blessed um, to be able to be involved in the disruption of the entire financial system one product at a time till eventually um, Peter can just say, fuck the banks. Yeah, fuck the banks. Well, getting, getting closer, I'm probably going to say fuck the UK as well. Um, it's, uh, yeah, and you know why, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, tell people how to find Bank to the Future. They, uh, if they want to put the URL in, they have to have a like, slight little difference from what you think, or have you got the proper domain now? Uh, yeah, no, we own banktothefuture.com with the A, but um, my final book ah. I'm going to write will be The Bank Stole My A because uh, we're working <laughs> on trying to get it back. So if you put the A in there, it will still get you to BNK. To it the still future. works. It's not uh, the Ponzi okay. A, it's the, it's the bank A. A, yeah. 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 <laughs> Bill, sure. uh, anything, for, anything you want to add before we finish? I, I don't know what your theme song is. I think you need to change it to that Beastie Boys song, You Gotta Fight. For you, right? Are you allowed to do that these days? Well, uh, I think we that would be an awesome. We, we, we do the occasional one. So we, yeah. we we do this new show called Bitcoin Rehab, where I get okay. over and hold on. We all just yell at each other. Mm -hmm. We did do. We used Amy Winehouse on that. Okay. And then when I got uh, Dan Moorhead on from Pantera Capital, I had this like romantic vision that he was a Pantera fan, heavy metal fan like me. I think we <laughs> he probably doesn't even hell. know what they are. <laughs> no, he, he did. He did. Sadly, yeah. he, he had he had heard of it. But you're kind of a metalhead, right? I, I mean, I think I think, you, I think yeah, Beastie Boys is right up your well. At least at least as it relates yeah. to crypto, it's right up your alley. We do it occasionally. We're probably going to get in trouble. Yeah. I think we did Risk Astley yeah. the other week with Willy Woo. So maybe maybe uh, I'll, you, you, I'll crypto guys getting in trouble. Uh, Bitcoiners <laughs> getting in trouble. <laughs> 
Come I mean, have a nice day, way. right? Anyway, yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I love this conversation. Always, I hope people enjoy it. Um, mm-hmm. Abra.com. I'm Bill Barhead on Twitter. Everybody knows where to find me now, so it's all good. All right, guys. Well, listen, appreciate both of you. Thanks for coming on. I think people will love this. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. Thank you. What a fucking banger of a show. Brilliant. Nice work, Simon. Thank you, Bill. Love that. It's been a show I've been desperate to make ever since Lloyd's told me they were closing my account. It just seems like the traditional banking system is going through its blockbuster moment. It clearly is a dying business model. Those dumb ass high street banks just haven't got their shit together. They're already being outcompeted by the neo banks and with Bitcoin as well. I think soon we won't need these people. I mean, when was the last time anyone went into a physical bank? I think with everything that's been built in the space at the moment, we're going to see a massive shift over the next few years. And quite honestly, fuck them. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed that one. If you do want to get in touch, you've got any feedback or questions, you can jump into our Telegram channel, which Ben Prentice is moderating like a legend. But also, if you want to hit me up, you can. You can use my email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. If you want to support the show, please do head over to Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Hopefully, you think the show deserves five stars. I do get the odd one-star review. You know, I take it to heart. But I do consider it. You know, if you've got valid criticism, let me know. I am interested, but please do go and give me a review. Apart from that, you can sign up to my newsletter. That's at neveredit.com. We're out of prison here in the UK. It's amazing. I went and got a haircut yesterday. Unbelievable. That level of freedom is so exciting. And I'm probably going to get to go out for a beer this weekend. Massive thanks to the UK government for releasing us from prison. This is so exciting. Also, hopefully I'm going to be able to get on a plane soon. Going to be heading to Miami for the Bitcoin conference, which is very, very exciting. All right, have a great week. Love you all, and I'll see you all on Friday. You got-